Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Right. Uh, I'll have to figure out where it's half speed. Yes, it's half speed. Is it? Okay, so let's just stop that. Is that blue? It seems like Bluebird. Yeah, the riffs are very similar. Oh, wow. So half speed then. That is Survivor, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, amazing. It's a great track. This might be the remixing coming up, chaps. This might be the take that Mark heard. Yeah. Right. Hello, ladies and gents. Paul and I really fancied having a really deep dive today about uh, our recent adventures and that have been taking up rather a lot of our time, but we've had enormous fun. Not just doing the whole Bake Off project, uh, which has been a, a long, a long one, shall we say. Uh, but what we experienced at the back end of December was just truly incredible. And almost as incredible as that has been getting the film out there. It's been out there for three weeks now. And just the reaction has really bowled us over. And we wanted tonight to just talk a little bit about some of the many questions that, that lots of people have asked us about the project, some of the, the kind of nuts and bolts and nitty gritty of it, and also have a really detailed look at one tape in particular, the tape for the Revlon Natural Wonder ad. Paul, what do you reckon? You up for this? I think that's a, a splendid idea, yeah. It's, uh, it's unreal, really, finding that tape, the fact that it had beautiful music on it and... Uh, you know, the amazing reaction we've had to the film we made. It's uh, keep pinching ourselves, don't we? It's, it's terrific. Um, and I, I've done an awful lot of, uh, a lot more baking, Paul, in the last few weeks. Henry Priestman sent me a big box of tapes down uh, a few weeks ago uh, from sessions he did in New York with a band he was in called The Yachts. are just fantastic one is um recorded on a really sort of amateurish looking tiny tape and sounds terrible but the music's great and right. he and he and, and yachts fans are going crazy for this thing but i've also done some quarter inch tapes for him um of later yacht stuff there's one uh album that was produced by martin Rushant, who did uh dare by human league wonderful uh, producer that's great but also some unreleased stuff by the christians and yes that, uh, uh, particularly the the acapella vocal parts to forgotten towns which is what the that's the master which appeared on the master yeah it, it, it sounds it sounds to me like they recorded the vocal parts and sampled them and this tape okay. is like a safety copy of the okay. vocal samples that were that were kind of spun into the record well this must be one of the troubles of a living in forgotten town Don't get me wrong, here the hollow words are ringing, now the chips are down So that's that was an absolute treat. I've done about 15 tapes and not one of them has, uh, has melted or, or gone dodgy. There was one that left a little bit of residue on the heads and I, I had to clean, clean it off but that's mm -hmm. 20 tapes or something now Paul um, that we've managed to stick in an oven and and not kill them so 
It's yeah. we've had a lucky start, haven't we? Really. So, Paul, take us take us through those wonderful couple of hours when we were playing back these mystery tapes. Talk us through that and, and the experience. Rene, who owns Cottonmouth Studios, had, had set up his 24-track machine brilliantly in advance. Everything was calibrated. Everything was ready. Um, uh, Roy had helped him, hadn't he, with that? Uh, yes, I believe so. I believe so. Because um, I don't know how much pure analogue work Rene does at Cottonmouth because he's obviously got a digital setup as well, which for most people recording wise is preferable or easier. Cheaper but too. Every, yeah. Everything was, was ready. So we, we, we went in there, myself, Sean, Peter Wadsworth and Liam Newton. With, uh, and, with, uh, with our trusty camera guy, Rob, um, with, recording every uh, second of what happens. That's right. Um, with our masks, uh, having all tested negative anyway for COVID. Um, and we, when you, just to drop back a bit, I mean, we were very lucky to do this when we did, weren't we? Mm. We did this in the kind of lull between waves two and three, is it? Yeah. Where, where we were allowed to go in there, um, but even a couple of weeks later, we wouldn't have been. Mm. And, and mm. you know, we're still locked down now. So we just caught that... Um, dip between the waves that allowed us to go into a studio and do this so we yeah. were very fortunate about that but anyway yeah we just were uh waiting i mean it was pretty straightforward really the tape got put on the machine um uh and we we played it and then the first thing we heard was the moog bass drum mm. um it was a, a weird disembodied sound wasn't it because <laughs> See, see what happened. There, there was three takes of Natural Wonder. Um, we can hear though. We can hear those in real life in a minute, Paul. We we can. Rene was specifically. He wasn't just putting all the faders up. Uh, he wanted to see what was on each track and monitor each track as we went. So we were hearing, in a way, disembodied glimpses of mm. of the track as it ran through. We heard a snatch of the Moog bass drum a snatch of Lowell's piano part, which, which got us very excited. A couple of kind of pinched guitar chords from Graham. Yes. Came through. And what we were hearing the first time, though, was take one, which is instrumental. Hmm. And so is take two, isn't it, Sean? And it is, the, vocal, yeah. the vocals are only added to take three. So suddenly, after a couple of minutes, obviously the, the uh, recording itself is very short, only 30 seconds or so, we were suddenly into the body of take three and we heard this <laughs> wall of backing vocals coming through. In fact, they were at a level where they were on first hearing overpowering Eric's lead. Mm. What you really heard was this stunning, it was like being, being pinned against the wall, wasn't it? By this incredible <laughs> yes. backing vocals. You could hear Eric's vocal sort of in the background. Well, you couldn't really take it in because, you know, everything came out in a few seconds, so you were just aware that there was this wall of sound. Obviously, you'll balance it out a bit. Giving me goosebumps, man. (laughs) 
<laughs> Love it. In terms of the vocals, Sean called it right and thought it was Eric singing. Both myself and Liam thought it was Kevin singing. Mm -hmm. And we'll come back to this, I'm sure, this question about who is singing <laughs> that. Great wonder. debate. Yeah. Um, but then it was, was it. too much to take in, wasn't it? Because you got it was a very such a rich sound, and it was a wall. It was it was unmistakably vintage 10cc. The quality, I mean, uh, it does come over on the on the film uh, and Sean's great mixes. I'm happy to say, but but honestly, folks, to be in the studio with these fantastic speakers, hearing that tape direct from source, the mm. quality of the, the ambience of the piano uh, and and the vocals and everything, it really was exciting because it just leapt out at you, didn't it? Yeah. Everything had been recorded so beautifully by Eric. It just sounded... I mean, it sounded like there was a grand piano right in front of you. It, that's was, like, what, it was like being in Strawberry, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, it was like being there at the time and it was all captured. It was uh, amazing, really. Yeah. No, I... I I couldn't have summed it up better myself, Paul. Should we have a dive into the tape and see, yeah, what, see, what, see what's on there? So Paul was talking about the very, very first sound that we heard, um, which was this wonderful sort of heartbeat. Quite appropriate, really, because that's exactly what was happening much, much faster <laughs> in our chests. And we heard this. And do you remember, Paul? It was it was very clear to us that that wasn't a a proper drum kit kick drum, was it? Pretty much the same Moog sound that they used on "I'm Not in Love." This bass drum was actually created by a Moog synthesizer. Now, Lol had one of the very first Moog synthesizers in the country, and he'd learned how to program it, so he was able to create this unusual soft bass drum sound, which Kevin played, being the drummer, throughout the song. In fact, a real drum kit would have been overpowering on this record, so it suits the subtlety of the backing track. Exactly. Our ears are attuned to that difference. Uh, it's a, um, just another fabulous innovation um, that the band came up with. Yeah. I'm, not sure, I'm not sure of anybody else that was using a Moog drum sound. Um, I, I don't know whether you are, Sean, at that period. Well, you had uh, bands like Kraftwerk who who were using kind of drum machines and synths uh, in in different different ways. They'd have the sort of stringy, brassy str synth sounds, but they also had percussive sounds as well. Agreed. But Tennessee C used it. I mean, I'm going back to I'm not in love here with something like Kraftwerk. The whole soundscape is synthesized, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas the rest of I'm not in love, and for that matter, natural wonder is, for want of a better term, real instruments. Mm. And the Moog is specifically brought in to lighten the bass drum sound. That's what they initially discovered yeah. on so I'm Not it, In Love. That's it. It's got a lovely, it's got a, a very deep resonance to it, but it's, yes. it's got a nice click as well. So it cuts through, which is really nice. Have okay. a listen to the noise in between each of the hits, Paul. Mm -hmm. There's a, a sort of a fizz. Pss, pss. Yes, I can hear an ambient sound 
banging back between each of the hits. Yeah, um, and part of that is the fact that, that Moog always produces a really noisy output. Um, it might be, I don't know, the output socket might be dodgy or the fact that there's so much circuitry in there, you know, the oscillators and, and filters and so on that, that create that hiss. So it's quite noisy. So I confess this was the only bit of tampering I did on on my final mix, Paul. I just mm-hmm. uh, used a, a slight bit of noise reduction there t- just to make the kick drum a little bit cleaner because uh, okay. it was very, very noisy indeed. So this, okay. the second sound we heard was one channel of this. Um, what, what we're going to hear now is both both channels of Lowell's piano. So there's, there's Lowell just pressing a key. Graham counting in. Take one is a few things to unpick here. Yes. Take take one is a slightly different structure. It's um it's two beats longer, isn't it? The mm. at the end. Yeah. Uh, whether they sort of uh, chop that down to synchronize with some visuals which they were, or, or to make it fit under thirty seconds or something, I don't know. Yeah, m- maybe but- maybe they went back into the control room, timed it and found that it was just a you know a couple of seconds too long or something. That's right. Um, that piano part, of course, is really the bedrock of the entire track. And um, we're going to look at that in a lot of musical detail with Eric, not the Eric, but uh, nonetheless a contributor <laughs> who's going to join us for another part of this podcast. So we won't go too deep into chords and things because he's... No. He's got a lot of fascinating um, analysis, which he's going to bring to, to that area. But the um, even just a casual listen, but when we heard it, the first thing we thought was, well, Lowell's arpeggios. We thought consequences. We thought brand new day. We thought somewhere in Hollywood. Hmm. We thought don't hang up. They were all there. Yeah. Lowell's got this style of of hitting four notes in a round, but the first note is is the bass note presumably the first notes played with his left hand and the other three with his right hand yeah I'm going to ask eric about that because i'm not sure whether it is actually done like that or not mm. um but yeah his, his and it's beautiful playing isn't yeah, it yeah yeah so light yes it's it's lol's um piano skills <clears throat> very different to eric's eric's much more of a kind of rootsy player very good piano player in his own right but more of a probably his R&B background comes out he can do some good, really good blues and rock and roll licks on the keyboard mm. um, and of course he uses it a lot as a writing tool so it's it, it's a fundamental instrument for Eric as well as Lowell but yeah. Lowell uses it in a in a different way yeah absolutely um, a curio for you Paul here um, we're, we're listening to Lowell's right hand now I think uh, ah, okay yeah tr- uh, track three um, Grand Piano 2, which I think is the right hand. Tell me how many instruments you can hear playing with LOL. One, right, take two, two now. Three, four. 
Okay. Well, first to say they've already shortened it by take two. That's got the slightly amended structure. I can, I can hear hear something tapping. Is yes. it is it Kevin tapping a hi hat to keep time? Now Kevin will be playing the the Moog kick drum live. So the question is, who's playing the hi hat? Do you think Kevin's just tapping the hi hat with his foot as he's playing the the kick drum with his finger? Uh, There's a question. <laughs> they, they won't. Well, since they won't, since they don't remember doing the track. Oh God, we're not going to be asking them the question. Uh, no, like no they, they they won't respond well to that at all. No. They? Uh, um, <laughs> I oh, this is purely conjecture, but I doubt it because uh, you'd normally you'd normally be doing one thing on the Moog, wouldn't you? You wouldn't be having it as part of your kit. You wouldn't be sitting down at a kit and. Um, no, but it, it, it might have it might have the moog on a stand or a table, uh, and then just that the hi hat on its own, just so his foot can tap away at it. But there's definitely uh, definitely a hi hat going on there, and you you just don't hear it in the mix at all because it's just submerged no. under all those those lovely things. So yeah. uh, we've got the three of them playing together, um, and what you end up with. Um, and this is lovely interjection. This is lovely. This is the right near the end. This is the time honoured way of 10cc recording. Right back to the Neil Sedaka albums, when Eric was in, uh, Eric was at the board, and and Lol and Graham and Kevin would play the backing tracks, and that that was the the procedure, you know, pretty much all the way through. So it's you know they were still doing their their normal. Normal stuff, which is great. 100%. And normally it would be Kevin on the drums and the, the two yeah. of them would just be playing electric guitar, wouldn't they? Yeah. But this was a very different instrumentation. So um, what we've got is take one then. This is the three of them playing together, unless we've got a, a mystery guest hi-hat player. One, two, So now we can hear Graham playing on the offbeat electric guitar. So, so, we can, of, right. so of course we can hear him on the on the piano uh, track, Paul, because he's in the same room as Lol. Um, we can the, the microphones inside the piano are actually picking up the sound, the acoustic sound of of Graham's guitar. And we take two again. You you, you hear them just just tweaking the the piece so it's a little bit shorter. And this time you don't have Lol or Kevin banging their their foot or their, their hand on something just to kind of keep time, which we had with right. with, with take one. Now we can hear Graham playing 
electric guitar on the offbeats. Presumably, now that from memory, there's two tracks. One is guitar and one is guitar echo. That's right. So he would, he would have just been doing chink, chink, and that delay effect in time with the track is added on the second guitar track. Is that right? Absolutely. And they could have only done that, that echo effect with a, a tape machine. Um, and I think to get, to get it exactly in time, Paul, they'd have probably had to change the speed of the tape. Yeah. So that they... Right. You know, so that the tape would travel the right distance between the two heads, so you get the yeah. echo. Um, so this is this is Graham's guitar dry on tape one. Okay, that that lovely thin sound, similar yeah. similar in a way to what uh, what he used on "I'm Not in Love," and this is this is the guitar fed through the tape echo. Love that sound. It's terrific, it's isn't fabulous, it? It's fabulous, isn't it? It's like dub reggae. Yes, eighth notes, isn't it, yeah. in with the track? Yeah. Wonderful. And uh, me being the ultimate recording <laughs> geek, what do you notice about the countings, Paul, at the start of the guitar part, <laughs> the start of the piano part, and the start of the dry guitar part? Because this says an awful lot about the way Eric Stewart engineered music i'll give you another a clue this is what the first time we heard graham's uh, counting listen listen to it One, two, three, four. right that's the piano track this right. you hear graham's counting at the start of the guitar track as well the dry one what do you notice what's the difference uh, there? no reverb the first time it's soaked with reverb and the second time it's dry. So, in other words, the effects are being printed as it's going onto the tape. Absolutely. That, that, that wonderful reverb we hear on the, on the piano, and we hear it later as well on some of the other instruments too. Wow. Uh, is, is actually, yeah, like you say, printed onto the tape. In other words, they're, they're feeding those, in, those mics through an effects unit and that's going mm. straight down onto tape. These days... Um, Virtually no one does that because professional mixers like to kind of tweak things and add effects and use EQ and compress compression after mm. the session. They can fix it in the mix. But one of the things, Paul, that makes this Revlon tape such wonderful evidence of what a brilliant engineer Eric was is that he's making these very bold, quite brave decisions, uh, basically deciding what an instrument will sound like in the mix before it's mixed. So it's almost like he's got that 20-track mix already in his head. And it's quite hard to do when you think about it because the <laughs> question is, how bright do I make that instrument? How much reverb or how much echo do I put on it? He can't change it because it's there on tape recorded ex exactly as is. And the fact that the Revlon ad sounds so wonderful as a finished product means that... Eric was extremely skilled in planning uh, the taste and, and sound of everything that went on to tape. Yes. He, well, he'd, yeah, he'd already made those decisions, but they in turn had come from years and years of cumulative experience about knowing the players. I mean, he, he's not working with a band that he hasn't worked with before. He's working with his, his buddies here. He knows 
every nuance of the way they play and the yeah. way they play together. Um, I won't say it was second nature because that sort of that that belittles his enormous skill, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, he he must have planned it in his head before, but uh, it's an it's a fantastic skill. And of course, yeah, you, you you said just now, Sean. Nowadays, engineers like to fix things in the mix. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what well, that's what we'd all like to do. But often, if you leave and leave and leave a decision until you it. You, you don't make any decisions and then you're left with too many variables. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was the decisiveness of, of Eric and of many people working in the industry at that time, uh, born out of necessity, right, originally, because with a limited number of tracks, they had to make these decisions. That's right. I mean, people cases. like, I think, Tony Visconti, Joe Meek, some really, you know, some some really pioneering producers yeah. w- would do it yeah. in, in this way, like like Eric was. And yes. it's, it's possibly one of the reasons why, you know, their records, their production sounded so um, so unique. But this is interesting as well. And I know we're kind of going down our usual rabbit holes. But for me, this is fascinating because it, it allows us to picture that room. We know that there are two uh, probably Neumann microphones, thousands of pounds each, inside mm-hmm. the, the piano. Um, not sure if the lid's up or down, probably up. Um, capturing the left-hand side of the strings and the right-hand side. Then you've definitely got a a mic capturing Graham's guitar amp because we can hear his voiceover. But also here, this surprised me, was that we can hear Graham's counting on the delay track as well. Here we go. Very often what they'd be doing is, is they after the three of them had gone and recorded the backing track in the, in the live room as a yeah. three as a three piece usually they'd do their overdubs in the control room wouldn't they they graham would normally bring his his fender stratocaster into the control room maybe plug mm. it straight into the desk and he'd do his rhythm parts likewise lol and eric would be doing their electric guitar parts in the control room keyboards would be done in that way as well do you see what i mean Right. So usually the only overdubs that 10cc would do back in the live room would be their vocals. I like the way at the end of this guitar track that the sound changes and you get that lovely clean guitar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that's the same track, isn't it? It is. So it, is Eric dropping the effects at that point? Would, would that have been dropped in or played live, do you think? Yes, yeah, some somebody is kind of turning the volume down on the tape. You, you can actually hear a movement sound like someone knocking something over. <laughs> so maybe it's poor Pete Tattersall in there. Yeah, yeah you know, turn it down when I nod. Type, yeah, yeah. type of thing. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, track four. Oh yeah, the real maracas. Yeah, this can only be the maracas can only be played by one candidate. I imagine that lovely reverb again. Yeah. Nice one, Kevin. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, I was wondering where, how he was going to deal with the stop time. He just stopped and yeah. started again when, when the rhythm picks up. That's right. And not an easy job, actually, to, to overdub percussion, is it? Because um, he's not actually 
really uh, playing along with anything particularly rhythmic. There's the 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 Moog bass drum is there, um, mm. but it, I think it takes a, a drummer or a professional percussionist to to put down parts that accurate. To be honest, yeah, it's very easy to pe- to play percussion badly, isn't it? It really is, and maracas uh, aren't easy either. No. And then we've got that that lovely um, bass guitar sound that that Graham was so enamoured of when. Mm. Um, when we played it to him the other week, that was terrific. He really that really turned him on, didn't he? He loved the bass sound. Which was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, as great. Kevin says, not not the most complex bass part, but the sound is fantastic, and I oh, like yeah. the the dead the deadness of the strings. They're very mm. rich sounding, but they sound kind of yeah deadened, which I think is mm. a wonderful sound, very McCartney esque. Hear the sound of um, Graham arranging plectrums in the background there. <laughs> Right, and what do we notice about those last four notes? Uh, a, a drone. They're all the same. That's yeah, right. Yeah, uh, it's it's a pedal note as the as the at the very end the the, the chords dance above, which is a, a lovely little touch. Very Goldman touch, isn't it as well? Um, yeah, that's right. The fact you can hear him moving around before and after that that, that take three, because of course the, the bass is only on take three because yes. um, all the overdubs are, are done around take three as the, as the best kind of backing track. But the fact you can hear Graham moving around uh, shows you that it was a bass that was mic'd up rather than, than going DI, direct injection, into the desk. Right, which in turn means it must have been done in the live room? Or yes. Or doesn't it necessarily? Yes, it would have done, because in the control room there would have been uh, the sound of the speakers... Uh, the sound of coughing and, and cigarette smoking yes. and that sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. With so it. with it, okay. Yeah. So, so that was probably breaking with tradition as well. They probably just wanted that the sound of um, the the sound of the bass going through the amp. That was track eight, the bass. Track mm-hmm. nine is empty on the tape, and there, there's absolutely no audio on there at all. I suspect it was possibly a dodgy channel on the desk or something. Or just to leave space, because adjacent tracks can bleed into each other as well, can't they? Yeah, they can. They can. Um, yeah, the, ne- the next track along is, is Eric's first lead vocal, uh, and he's got three lead vocals grouped together on tracks 10, 11 and 12. And then, strangely, he's got a lead vocal from the end of the tune is on track 20, which is quite mm. odd. But one of the interesting things about this, Paul, is that I, w- I want you to listen closely and I want you to listen to the the apparent echoes that we hear on this on these vocal tracks. There is no reverb, there's no actual tape echo or anything on them. But mm-hmm. strangely, you can hear each phrase um, before he actually sings it, so a pre-echo. And then you can hear mm-hmm. a post-echo after he's sung it. Have a listen. And you'll hear his voice kind of tumbling over itself until he sings. <laughs> Dream a dream of far off places. Did you notice that? You, hear, you, you heard yeah. far off places, far yeah. off places, far off places. 
getting louder and louder and louder. Is that reverse echo or something? Or is it, or is it no? No, I think it's, it's purely the fact that this tape's been sitting around for 44 years. Right, OK. Um, because what, it, what it's done, I think it's called print-through. Yes, right. So if you imagine you've got um, all these, these coils of magnetic tape um, where these magnetised bits of plastic are lying tightly against each other for years, the magnetic kind of signal, for want of a better word, kind yes. of bleeds through onto the next bit of tape. Right. And then also bleeds through a little bit less to the next bit of tape and a little yeah. bit less. So when you play it through, you get the, what sounds like these pre-echoes, but actually all they're, all they're doing, it's like a piece of tape has stained the tape next to it. I'm with you. So with a, if with you a copy to, of itself. So if you were to unravel that tape, you'd see that those points we're hearing are exactly one revolution away from the main Exactly, part. exactly. Okay. And, and, and you can hear it on, on Eric's second lead vocal here as well. Gentle makeup with shifting winds. And you can also hear the bleed coming probably from his headphones. From his headphones, that's something different. That's what he yeah. was hearing to sing against. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll listen to those. Kiss your face. Mirror, mirror. is a natural wonder. It's so accurate and precise and beautiful, that singing, isn't it? So, so wonderful. Uh, the way singing natural, every day is a natural wonder. That note is held at a very low volume for a very long time, yeah. but, it, but it's held beautifully in pitch and it, it doesn't sort of cut off in a jagged way. It just stops gently. Yeah. There's a tiny bit of edge almost, a tiny bit of roughness mm -hmm. to the voice. When you listen closely, uh, if, even though it's a very soft vocal and that stops it from being too fey, um, it's, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's all instinctive the way he's singing it. It's absolutely beautiful. It really is, isn't it? It's exquisite. And it's, it's not entirely typical of Eric's singing, is it? Um, he normally gives vocals a bit more bollocks than that. Often, yeah, but he can sing very softly. I'm trying to think of some examples. Uh, well, I mean, the, the beautiful soft lines he does um, in One Night in Paris... Then the floor cleared, yes. a woman screamed to herself. That's him, isn't it? And it then is. Kevin does the next line. And, Good uh, spot. That's new, a very similar style, yeah. And Brand New Day, where he sings some solo lines yeah. again. Old, so, old Wild Men as well, actually. Yes. Um, so it's just, it, he was refining and refining his vocal technique. I mean, he came the furthest from Hot Legs when he was doing these really weird kind of uh, grunty, muffled vocals almost mm -hmm. in, in with the rock tracks. And now he's traversed a huge uh, space and, it, and it, he's singing, you know, as exquisitely as, as Kevin does. Yeah. And I use that word advisably. They, they can all sing in different styles, but, you know, going for pure beauty, he, he's really up there with Kevin now, isn't he, in 1976, I think. Absolutely. And, and I felt we were perhaps a little bit unfair um, the other day when we were talking to Giles, Paul, and I was saying that my theory was that Eric was 
in, in my mind, trying to sound a bit like Kevin so that mm -hmm. they could get an echo of all wild men. Uh, because the fact you've got these two lead vocals kind of alternating, dancing around each other, suggests mm -hmm. to me that they would have had two lead vocalists on this tune. Um, but I, I adore the way Eric sings this. Um, there, there are two more vocals that I wanted to just briefly highlight. Um, there are two inserts, basically. One is in at the end of the track, and, and mm -hmm. the other one is in the middle. Right, so this is track 12. Young skin's younger. And the other one that's uh, buried away on, on track 20. Mirror, mirror, you don't lie. Every day's a natural wonder. And again, you can hear the bleed through from his, uh, from his headphones. He yeah. sings with very little vibrato, Eric, doesn't he? He does, although there's a little bit of vibrato that I think is making a lot of people think that, that, that Kevin's in there somewhere. Right, because Kev is well known for his deep vibrato. In fact, does he always use vibrato on a kind of long-held note? I think he yes, does. Yes, he does. Doesn't. In fact, when he's singing high or low, actually, to be honest. Yes, yes. Um, when you, that's one of the reasons that 10cc's harmony sound is so distinctive. Uh, and the Godly and Cream harmonies as well. We you listen to consequences and the, the sort of mm. choir sounds. Kevin's vibrato is the main feature of that yes. choir sound. Um, so if you're listening to any 10cc-related thing that doesn't have that vibrato, it means that Kevin wasn't singing. I'm not writing this. Uh, my old mate Jimbo's doing that because he's still got his arms then I'm lucky because I've got mid-leads. I better close now, darling, because I think I'm going to die. Cheerio, love. Yes, right. Basically. And, and is it you, Sean? Uh, it might be you. Who are able to control the speed of your vibrato? I'm yeah, I, I think that's a you know a, a common thing. I think among okay. Among, well, among I've singers. never been able to do that, but it's. I mean, that's a crucial thing if you're going to self harmonise, obviously, because it has to match and lock in. Otherwise, it's going to be sort of moving around all over the place. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sure they were probably smoking too much to to be worried about uh, kind of matching vibrato speed. Yeah, <laughs> right. But but if you're not matching vibrato speed and you've got a very wide vibrato, it is going to sound messy, isn't it? Is that right? I, th I think if you overdub enough times, you, you'll, you'll get yeah. it to sound more like a choir because there, there's a kind of a randomness oh. in the sounds. I don't know. Okay. I don't okay. know. It's a, a difficult one. So next up, Paul, is something that I kind of mentioned on, on our Zoom call with Kevin and Graham but I think they were too kind of transfixed by who the hell could have been singing lead vocal. They, they just ignored my question. And it was um, something that, that interested me because we hear an instrument that I'm sure we don't hear on any 10cc track on the first four albums. And that's this one.
Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking now, is that a string synth um, of the sort that Yamaha made, a sort of low-level synthesizer that just specialised in in that sort of stringy sound, or is it actually, Paul, an organ, like a Farfisa or um, not a Hammond, maybe? What do you think? Uh, My gut feel would be to say a synth because it seems to have a very slow attack on the sound yeah. you know it fa- it fades in which uh maybe you can do that with an organ but that would be that's associated more with a, a synthy sound isn't it yes where you can um, you can actually play with the attack so that it comes in slower Yes, that's right, and that often sounds very effective on string sounds, yeah. which they're doing there. It's yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Um, Moog is used here and there on "How Dare You," but in terms of a, a string synth, or or, or that... indeed a, a polyphonic synth, in other words, a synth that you can play more than one note on it at, at the same time. What, well, I was going to ask you now. There's three tracks of this on the multi-track, isn't there? No, there's there's two. Uh, and and, okay. and and therein lies a revelation that I'm going to make to you. Okay. Yes, there are three tracks, or should be three tracks of string synth, if that's what the instrument is, on this. Mm. Now, we've got 13, which is the high uh, string synth. 14 is mid. But on 15 uh, should have been another load of high strings. But for some strange reason... We don't have any digital record of what was on track 15. It just has kind of disappeared. Um, now, I don't know why it could could be me copying the, the digital files over once we'd finished in the studio, but that's a bit of a mystery. So it means that what we've got here is only kind of 95% of, of everything that was on the tape. But that said, it was probably Lowell repeating the parts that he played on the previous track on on 13 so So the two so the two ones we do have are they both polyphonic i.e recorded on the same track at the same time there's more than one note yes absolutely here's okay here's the high part what we'd heard previously was the mid part here's the high okay okay skeletal the part isn't it i can i think i can only hear two notes at a time on that part at least i can i I think i can hear four i can hear i think a three a three note chord and and a lower note underneath like a bass note underneath are you sure certainly at the end part i could just hear two notes an octave apart okay let's give it another let's give it another play I, yeah. that's a that's a three note chord i think okay but yeah who knows um so the, the two together um it kind of it sort of fattens out the sound this string synth but in a way it kind of almost doubles the job that the backing vocals are doing which will come to very very shortly 
Um, right, but it but it only appears where the backing vocals doesn't, doesn't it? So it, it's sort of no, it's, it's all the way, it's all the way through. Is it? Yeah. Wow. All the way through, uh, so it's 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 almost doubling the BVs, uh, but it does play in the middle section where the BVs aren't. Right. Yeah. So yeah, a bit of a mystery, and I, and I liked your theory um, the other day, Paul, when we were talking to Giles about this maybe had been earmarked for Lol's Gizmo. Yes, uh, as I said then, it's what's perhaps significant about Natural Wonder is what doesn't appear, the gizmo. But Giles came back with a very good argument. Uh, it may have been pr- just pragmatic reasons. They were in there for only a day, and they didn't have time to get a temperamental gizmo part down, which might have taken too long. Yeah. Whereas the string synth, which you know, doesn't sound as singular as the gizmo, but it's it's doing a similar job. And in the context of this, it, it really didn't matter, I suppose. Yes, yes, I agree. But uh, yeah, that would have been a, a quite an amazing thing, wouldn't it, to have heard a, a gizmo on there, <laughs> just to, just to add to our joy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, an interesting little thing. Um, and I can't I can't really hear this sound on any other 10cc track. No. Uh, Certainly not um, post, uh, pre the split. I'm trying to think whether I can hear anything like it on the Godling Cream record. You know, pre ismism. Yeah, uh, that's the point. Actually, you can hear more use of organ type sounds on albums like L. Actually, yes. But the string synth. I mean, there might be. I'm not. I can't. I can't say for sure. But it's. A, it's a very. Uh, it just. It's not a usual sound. Uh, probably just brought in as a as a means to an end to fatten out the chords, essentially. Yes. Because apart, apart from the um, the arpeggios, which Lowell's playing, and the very small space taken up by Graham's choppy guitar, there's no chordal content in there, is there? No. And the, and that, the, back, that, and the backing vocals, of course. That's right. That's right. And talking of the back, backing vocals, Paul, we've got an absolute treat now. Um, as... as, as our listeners have heard us talk about many times. There are four tracks of backing vocals, and they involve what we thought was Graham, Kevin, and Lol in the live room singing a, a three-part chord four times. So they combine to effectively make twelve voices. I'd like to play you the first of these backing vocal tracks, track sixteen. Okay. Um, and we get the, the joy of hearing 10cc, I assume, standing in the studio, standing around one microphone. How many parts can you hear? Because I find it very difficult to know. You reckon there's four, don't you? I can tell. I worked, look on your face. I, I worked it out earlier, Paul. I, I got my guitar out. Okay. And um, <clears throat> you can hear, you know, we were talking about Kevin's vibrato. Yes. You can hear him very, very clearly going. Oh! So we'll listen again. L- listen out for that that sound. That's that's Kevin going. Oh! What, what note is that? That's an F. Right ah! Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he drops down a semitone. Okay. Now, on top of that part, you've got Lowell. He starts off singing an A. 
and then he drops down to A flat. Listen out mm -hmm. for that. Sorry. And then he stays on the G. Yeah. 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 Now, Graham's is easy to pick out as well because he's singing the lowest of the parts. And he starts off exactly going in parallel and, sa and singing the same notes as Lol, but a, a whole octave below. Oh, that's an A, is it? It's an A, so. It's not the bass note of the chord because that's played yeah. by. That's a D played on both the piano and, and the bass, but we'll come on to that yeah. a little bit later. Okay. So listen out for Graham going. Up. Yeah, I've got that. Yeah. Now, there is a fourth part in there, Paul, and mm -hmm. it's between Graham's lower part and Kevin's sort of high mid part, and it starts off singing a D. Ah! That carries on, drops down to a C, ah! and then just a lovely little semitone up to ah! the C sharp. So listen out for this. He actually sings it fairly quietly. And and it's got to be Eric. Because this is all sung at because the same time. Because it's all sung at the same time. So listen out for it. It's definitely four-part harmony. So wow. good old Peter so Tattersall would have been in the control room. Um, that is marvellous. That's better than we thought. It really well, is. So that's all four round a microphone, Paul. Wow, that's fantastic. Isn't it just? Um, I wonder if and that I wonder if that is the to hear all four of them in a stack like that from the bottom upwards going Graham, Eric. Kevin Lowell. I wonder if that's the way they normally did it when they stacked vocals. Yeah. Could be, couldn't it? I think it was. See, it seems to fit with their kind of relative uh, vocal timbres, doesn't it? It really does. And I, and I, I, I got very, very excited about that. And it, <laughs> it means that the that little section of the film is, is <laughs> something that I need to correct in the, in the final, <laughs> final, final edit. So if it ever gets on the box, this film... Uh, that's yes. definitely something that I'm going to correct. And apologies to Eric, we didn't spot you there, um, but we will, we will make sure that we atone for our sins. So fantastic. But one of the other treats about this is that we get to hear that wonderful strawberry reverb um, that, again, is, is to, to coin your phrase, burnt onto the tape. So we'll listen to the, the, the last take of bvs here mm -hmm. uh, track. and they're all identical are they every they're all, each... all identical sometimes certain singers are a bit louder in some yeah, sure, in, in, sure. in some takes than others um, mm -hmm. but what you'll hear listen out for the the gorgeous reverb Just, just wonderful. Do you remember Peter Tatsell when we met up with him a couple of Octobers ago, Paul? He, he was talking about the plate reverb that Strawberry yeah. had. And this is fascinating. I'm not sure you, you, you saw it and I forgot to mention it to you. 
up on my my social media feed came an advert for an actual plate reverb device it might have been i don't know ebay or even facebook messenger would you believe and it was an actual plate reverb from strawberry studios um it was a ridiculous amount of money it was i think a starting price of about four grand or something but have, have have you ever seen one of the the professional reverb units paul no. Can you explain to novices like myself what plate reverb does? Yeah, it's it, there are a number of different ways that that, that uh, recording studios got reverb, and in the old days they used to use what's what was called an echo chamber, which was literally sure. like a, a concrete dungeon or something um, yeah. with very flat, clean surfaces, a, a big cavernous space where they'd have a um, a speaker in there that would be feeding the raw signal from the control room down into this space that the sound would come out the speaker fill the space with with reverberations and then a microphone would would pick up those real life reverberations and feed them back into the desk upstairs so that was the original echo chamber there were these horrible things called spring reverbs which were literally a spring that when audio signal was sent into it it would vibrate and create the the illusion of reverb and you hear that kind of sound on on old guitar amps and um, okay. you can hear the spring going boing if, if you if you gently bang a, a guitar amp on the head uh, you'll hear yeah. a kind of a, a kind of a splashy yeah. sound very reminiscent of the start of uh, wipeout by the safaris That's the sound. Yeah, no, of, that's the sound of a spring reverb. Yeah, I'm familiar with that sound. It normally happens when I drop an amp downstairs. <laughs> yes, and the, le- the less <laughs> and said the last, about that, the better. That's the last. That's the last time you hear it. <laughs> yes, okay, <come>. absolutely. <laughs> but a plate reverb is this beautiful thing where, and this is my my very basic knowledge is that inside this big heavy soundproof box, kind of lead lined almost. You know, I don't know what they're made of. Maybe thick maybe concrete or solid wood or something, there's a a large metal plate that, again, when audio signal is is played uh, into this plate, it vibrates. Um, And and the flat, clean surface of the plate creates this incredibly smooth, natural, completely analogue fake reverb. And and that's what Strawberry used. Um, And it's just the most gorgeous gorgeous sound we hear it um very very prominently on things like eric's beautiful bit in one night in paris and the floor clear, almost cathedral like reverb we hear it yes. a lot on the how dare you album and and that is using one of these these plate reverb devices i'd love to have put in a bid for this thing but it was <laughs> like it was like something that they erect on the motorway when there's a contraflow and you get yeah. these enormous kind of vertical concrete blocks you know the ones oh, yeah. that, that kind yeah, of yeah. They, they stand up and, and it looks exactly like that this thing eric has as used it liberally all, all across the Natural Wonder track. It's a wonderful effect, I think, on the piano, on the electric piano, on the string synth and on the BVs. I think it's right. just, just a gorgeous thing. Marvellous. We didn't talk about the electric piano, did we? I think we jumped over that. But uh, that, yes. that, 
that's playing the same parts almost exactly or maybe exactly as the grand piano isn't it it, well, kind of, although uh, to me, and, and perhaps when we talk to um, our friend Eric shortly, um, yeah. he'll be able to tell us that the, the electric piano is playing almost a harmony of the grand piano. To me, okay. the, the notes are kind of stacked in a different way to the piano part, Paul. Uh, okay, okay. Like they're playing kind of uh, around the different same chord. Different inversion. Different inversion yeah. or the notes in a different order. It's something like that. But it's a, okay. I think it's a beautiful part. Presumably, this is on Eric's Fender Rhodes, isn't it? I think it must be, yeah. The, yeah. the one he was um, auctioning off a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's right. And another thing we couldn't afford. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you hear... Lol playing a sort of practice chord at the start here. Yeah. That does sound the same as the grand piano part, actually, doesn't it? I, I think I think it's the same, but yeah. again, that that reverb sound isn't it now, beautiful? A, now that reverb doesn't that come in from the instrument itself, or not? That that lovely doing yoing yoing yoing. Oh, oh no, that's the that's the tremolo effect of the uh, that comes with the electric piano. That kind of wow wow wow, where the volume goes up and down. That, uh, yeah, okay. that's, that's, so the, that... that's the, the that's the built-in tremolo effect, and then we've got the final. He said in inverted commas the final <laughs> track uh, that we're going to be looking at, which is the famous voiceover, which, <laughs> which is you know uh, unquestionably Kevin, whatever he says. <laughs> Natural wonder, oil-free makeup made with pure fresh water. It's by Revlon, isn't it? Yeah, it's not the best recorded track on this recording, is it? No, that was a, a, presumably a, a throwaway. As, as Liam uh, suggested, it's just a placeholder that somebody else was actually going to to voice over in, yeah. the, in the finished version. I, so think, they, I think that's definitely the case. It's got to be. They threw it off. And do you think Godley has, has added, is, isn't it? himself for the the sort of question marks come in there a a quizzical thing uh can't because it doesn't make any sense that does it i mean the doesn't it i should say yeah the rest of the voiceover makes sense as a tagline but isn't it yeah i it it kind of reminds me of that was it the silvercrin shampoo advert where there was a kind of a naughty sexual innuendo or a, a hint of one at the end where uh, two blokes would be looking at this gorgeous girl by the fountain and and and, and say, mm. "Is she or isn't she?" Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, uh, and may, I do. May, maybe it's it's a kind of a seventy style tagline. Um, and I should have done some research actually and found out whether that phrase "isn't it" appeared in any other Revlon <laughs> ads. It may have done. Is she or isn't she? You're the only one that knows for sure. New Harmony hairspray. Good question. Well, that brings us back to the lyrics, which are interesting now for several reasons. Well, Sean, just today you've you've synced the 
Natural Wonder 10CC track to the visuals of the Revlon advert, which was released. Yes, and and, uh, you, and, you, and hopefully you'll all have had a chance to have seen that on YouTube. By the by, the time this pod goes out, yeah. it's and it, uh, it it's amazing, isn't it? Because mm. well, a the length of the track is exactly the length of the the advert, the visual advert. Yeah. B the lyrics actually uh, describe in some cases exactly what's happening in the in the advert for mm. a start off the, the tagline made with fresh water um the whole theme of the of the of the film is is down by the sea okay that's salt water not fresh water but we're not going to argue that but um there's uh there's another bit isn't there where the the model is is she's washing her, her face isn't she in the water yeah uh april showers at exactly that moment yes uh, and mirror mirror is when she's applying the makeup. She's not actually looking into a mirror, or a mirror doesn't appear. But it, it, it's clearly she's, you know, she's putting the makeup on as if she were looking in a mirror. Yeah, because you see so, t- you see two of her on screen at the same time, don't you? Exactly. So there's a mirror effect. So this is a bit of a, a, a yes, another in the series of mini revelations, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so they, so they they might have been doing music to these visuals, or uh, had been given very very strong clues about what the visuals would be and maybe that edit of the advert had been sitting in the Revlon cutting room for a couple of years Paul because I think the ad that I used there came out in 78. Ah that's interesting. That might be wrong I think that's what the YouTube clip had said so that that might you know there might have been a mistake there but Okay. Maybe it's something that Revlon had wanted to put out for a while, but they were just looking for, you know, a more suitable song to put to put with it, you know. And they chose, right. and of course, they chose Carol King's "Natural Woman," didn't they? That that's right. Which, of course, is a beautiful track, an yeah. incredible track. But um, and not. Uh, do you know who, whose version? Um, you can't. It's quite buried. It's neither Aretha Franklin. Uh, nor Carol King's, is it? I don't know who is singing. I the... don't know. And perhaps I should do it, or someone should do a Shazam job on it and see if we can identify whose version it is. It's good. I'm living a new way, more real, more natural. I want to look that way too. And now I do with natural wonder. My lips look richer but real. My eyes softer but natural. My skin smooth and touchable. I love natural wonder because it lights up my looks in a natural way. Light up your looks in a whole new natural way with natural wonder. Wonderful. Yeah, fascinating. There's something else, another little mini revelation, Paul, from this tape, but it's probably the the most minor of of the revelations (laughs) that that we're looking at today. Um, I'm not sure I've mentioned... The, the hidden track uh, to anyone. Uh, but here we are. We actually have a hidden track on on the Natural Wonder tape. It's track 22. Um, okay. Kevin, Kevin's voiceover was 21, and, and we assumed that that was it because all the 21 to 24, Eric hadn't written anything on the tape box. And um, I played this because um, rather than just delete it from my files, I noticed that there was a tiny bit of signal on it. Here we go. It come, It starts from um, two minutes in, which means that it was recorded over as an overdub mm-hmm. on top of take three. In other words, the, the final version. So listen really carefully. 
Wow. I didn't hear. I could only hear the headphones spill. Is there something at the end? That is, it's just an ambient recording uh, from a live mic in what I think is the live room uh, okay. that I think they accidentally recorded. I can't hear any anybody performing anything in the studio. Okay. So I think they must have accidentally left one of the one of the tracks, one of the channels live, mm. and unknowingly recorded just the sound of playback from somewhere it could be coming through headphones or right. coming through the little monitor speaker that they had in the studio right it's odd isn't it but it's just a curio and nothing more <laughs> <laughs> so there we go and i hope uh, folks you've, you've enjoyed that little well i say little deep dive into this tape <laughs> we've we found it really really fascinating um hearing things kind of laid bare like that uh, and it's it's nice for us anyway as as 10cc geeks to to make these tiny little discoveries and uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, discovering them with us Shifting winds and morning flowers Kiss your face with April showers Mirror, mirror, you don't lie Every day's a natural wonder Young skin's younger
Now we come to the second part of, of this podcast, which Paul and I are incredibly excited about. I got an email just a couple of weeks ago from a chap from Atlanta in Georgia, uh, a chap by the name of Eric Baumgartner, and he sent the most extraordinary little musical analysis of the work of Mr. Lawrence Cream, and with an amazing discovery. And hopefully we'll have time as part of this podcast to delve into Lowell's magic chord. Um, <laughs> we hope so. Uh, but for the time being, we, we're going to welcome with open arms, Eric, to talk about what's going on musically in Natural Wonder. Eric, warmly welcome. Hey, guys. Wonderful to be here. You're welcome, Eric. Nice, nice Good to see stuff. you. Good stuff. So, Eric, we'd love to, to ask you first, really, where you are professionally with your music. If, if indeed you are a professional, you sound like one from everything we've heard. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and um, your relationship with 10CC. That would be fascinating to hear. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. I am a, a musician um, living in Atlanta and just do a wide variety of things. I perform with bands. I work with uh, theatre groups and choruses. I also do a lot uh, in music publishing for Hal Leonard, um, I will develop uh, educational piano materials, including original compositions, um, pop and jazz arrangements. Um, so it's kind of like a, a bit of a musical jack of all trades, for <laughs> lack of a better term. Wow. Um, and, you know, it's, it's nice to have the, the publishing aspects. I can do a lot of work at home, unfortunately. Um, they still have a lot of projects they can uh, give me. So because the um, performance world is still pretty much shut down, that's been a nice thing to be able to focus on. So that's the, the, the nutshell in terms of the professional thing. Wow. Uh, but a lifelong 10CC fan. Um, I grew up in northern Ohio outside of Cleveland. And at the time, kind of, it was just a very much sort of bland meat and potatoes rock and roll was in the air, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was always drawn to the unusual uh, groups. And, and 10CC, probably I was first aware of them, like most people uh, in America, uh, with uh, I'm Not In Love. Mm -hmm. And it took a while to kind of then find that they were more than that, you know. And because I didn't appreciate what went into that song, to me it was just kind of like, oh, it's a nice, you know, little love song, or I'm not in love song. And um, once I did discover them, I was like, oh my god, this is just fantastic! Uh, I just uh, totally absorbed those those first four albums, and then discovered, you know, the offshoots and the Godly and Cream and such. So I was quite uh, evangelical about trying to, <laughs> you know, turn people on to this fantastic music. I thought it was just uh, wonderfully creative, melodic. Uh, the harmonies were fantastic. That was just something that. I think if I had a common uh, bond of, of the groups that I was pursuing, like uh, as, a, as a teenager, it would be those that had interesting uh, harmonic uh, progressions. I mean, you know, I, I hear something like this on the radio. Hmm. I'm going, what is that? You know, and I'm so fascinated <laughs> by those interesting moving chords. You know, and so 10CC definitely fit into that camp, uh, you know, and the, the, the Beach Boys and quite a lot of the Elton John stuff. And um, so anyway, they've always been a part of, of me musically. 
And uh, as we were talking before the, we started recording, it's just been a great year for 10CC fans in terms of having the, the Liam Newton book come out and me discovering your podcast and, of mm-hmm. course, your discovery of the, the Revlon tape. Uh, it's been a great excuse to sort of revisit the canon and immerse myself in this wonderful music. Too right, too right. Well said. Uh, it has been a wonderful year, and it, and it carries on getting better and better as well, um, as as we found out in in these wardrobes with mysterious tapes inside. You know, it's it's, it's ridiculously exciting. Well, and we're Isn't it? we're keeping our fingers crossed, Eric, that there might be even more hidden treasures. Um, but uh, we we have the feelers out. And we have a feeling in our water that there just might be one, one or two new discoveries coming um, to a, a baking factory near, near us. <laughs> who, who would have guessed we could be this excited about a mascara jingle? Well, indeed. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> but it, I mean, you couldn't really want a unheard 10cc track from uh, to come from a better time than mid 76 could you because it's <laughs> it's the absolute the nexus as you often say sean of of, of the split of the band but yeah I, I, I mean they've it's it's strange this song because it was recorded six months after how dare you was complete mm. um so they even though they were about to split they are still evolving aren't they mm. that's what i found is is fascinating it's amazing to get any kind of new recording from that classic lineup while they were still recording as 10cc. That's what, like a three and a half, four year window? Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, exactly. it's extraordinary. Yeah. I, and I kind of like the fact that it's something so odd like this because it's a completed project. Mm-hmm. If it was something that was maybe a half completed, half hearted, little glimpse that would have been fascinating but this is just so unusual that i almost kind of like prefer i'm happy to have this uh, as, as what's materialized yes that what well, that's a great point so what was what was your first kind of gut reaction to hearing the track eric well i was not familiar with your podcast a friend of mine jeff a big 10 cc fan forwarded me the the video the youtube link I said, okay, what is this? And I put it on, and I was just delighted from beginning to end. Uh, you're, you're, it was this quest, you know, and the enthusiasm you guys had, the passion. I'm like, oh, you know, these are my mates. <laughs> it's, it was just like so, it was wonderful. Uh, and I, I, I commented to Jeff afterwards that even if there wasn't the payoff, the reveal, yeah. I think it would have been a delightful uh, video, just kind of the quest. You, you learn so much about, you know, the Stockport and Strawberry Studios. And even for those who don't know the whole idea, having to bake tapes of a certain age in order to, to play them without damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I heard it, uh, well, you know, the thing that really killed me was as soon as you isolated that warm wash of backing vocals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the goosebumps. I was like, that's the sound. That's the thing that we miss so much. It's yes. just that wonderful, that blend. And that, and that was the thing that killed me. I said, ah, you know, 
everything else was gravy, but just ten and a half. <laughs> you know, uh, you, that bit in there was what really struck me the first time. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, and and hearing that, we we were talking earlier, Eric, about the the joy of hearing that burst of harmony for the first time in the studio. Yeah. Um, where the where Rene, the engineer in there. Had, uh, had kind of tested, gone through and tested all the channels and the tracks on the tape. And then suddenly this unexpected take three suddenly leapt out the speakers and the backing yeah. vocals were turned up a bit too high. Yeah. So we just got this kind of, uh, uh, yeah, this kind of Queen meets the Beach Boys sort of effect. And it was just <laughs> spectacular. Oh, wonderful. We'd love to hear your, your kind of deep dive on what's going on musically. Oh, okay. Um, it's a pretty straightforward progression, particularly for 10cc, but considering what the brief was, it's not surprising that it's not as adventurous as what you would find with their other... Did you Have you guys learned anything about the composition, about who wrote the music? No. We, well, we assume it was an Eric-based thing, purely because, from what we surmise, he was the prime mover behind the deal, if you like. Okay. Uh, that's what we think. Um, and to me, um, and it's only a gut feel, it does sound like an Eric song, in inverted commas. I know Sean hears some of the later chord movement that, uh, with the, the bass notes changing and stuff. He thinks he hears Graham there. Mm. I, I think I hear Eric... Uh, fairly strongly melodically, but that's I have no evidence to back that up. Yeah, the, 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 that kind of two-note melody that repeats in the first half of the song is yeah. quite reminiscent of... So, it reminds me of some of Eric's later songs, uh, including some of the mm. things on some of the things on his solo work, where the, okay. the melody is actually quite limited. Um, but it's made. It, it reminded me also of never get up if you don't yeah. get up. You won't mm. stay down if you sit around. Yeah, no, same two notes. Great point. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, And and that, that's definitely an Eric thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It, it'd be easiest to kind of uh, uh, talk about the piano since that's the most prominent uh, harmonic instrument throughout. Yeah. I'll play these first four measures. Say uh, uh, in terms of the piano style, that's very much what you hear on a lot of, of uh, low piano bits. Um, the bass, the left hand, steady pulse, while the right hand breaks up the chord. But also, one thing he does is he tends to lean on that last right hand note, that last eighth note. Mm. Yes. Same kind of pattern here. Mechanically, this is identical in terms of solid left hand while the right hand does. But he leans on that. Um, so it's very common for Lowell to have that steady that piano left hand. Uh, he can be more ornate in the right hand. So that was 
very much recognizable as something that, that uh, he would do. Hmm. Um, just since you guys, I know, love tangents and deep dives, I'll just kind of <laughs> say that he tends to, he also likes to expand upon that. He'll keep a steady left hand pulse, but the right hand then might do sort of a quasi uh, Travis style finger picking guitar thing. Hmm. Like you think about. Paul Simon and Kathy's song, or April Come She Will, or uh, yeah. Dear Prudence by the Beatles. Uh, so he tends to kind of have a more ornate version, which again has the left hand doing the pause. And that's everywhere. Do you think, Eric, they, do you think they come from his uh, lineage as a guitarist? Because obviously he would be familiar. And, and a lot of his early guitar work, even back to the hot legs, he's playing arpeggios on guitars, mm -hmm. isn't he? True. Do you think that's something that sort of transferred over? I, I guess it would have to. You know, it's just something about, it's, it's in the, uh, the arrangement. You know, when you start to think about the accompaniment and you break away from just having block chords, you know, yes. what are you going to yeah. do with this? And, and mm -hmm. so I think that would just be a natural instinct for him to then uh, try to approximate that or have something that's more, uh, you know, uh, flowing like that, 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 that forward um, a rhythmic motion. So mm -hmm. very typical. Oh, and also I found this fascinating as well. Again, forgive me if you guys already hit upon these things, uh, but when we jump to the electric piano, this is also a very common uh, lull technique where he will, let me, I think there's some tremolo on it. Yeah, he'll essentially double what he's doing on the piano, often two octaves higher with some kind of auxiliary uh, treated instrument. So the, the, the electric piano on this is identical for a lot of it. There are a few differences in right. terms of the voicings that he's doing, but for the most part, it's that. And uh, one thing I can kind of show you that reminded me of in going back to Brand New Day, uh, if you listen to that, there is a, uh, a piano that sounds like it's going through a Leslie cabinet played two octaves higher, and then loaded with reverb. Uh, I can do like an approximation here with some flange and I'll goose the uh, reverb. A box with a moving speaker inside. Uh, actually, the, the, two two moving speakers. Yeah, yeah that they'd that use with the, the, Hammond, the Hammond organ usually, wasn't it? Exactly. Very common for Hammond organ. And in the '60s, bands like the Beatles said, "Hey, it sounds pretty good if we put a guitar through it, you know, or a voice um, such as Tomorrow Never Knows, the last verse of uh, of that. John is singing through a Leslie Cabinet. Yeah, yeah. And so, guitar is very, very common. George Harrison would use it through guitar a lot." but not so much with piano. Um, there's something treated in terms of on Don't Hang Up as well. I'm not sure if that's a Leslie or what kind. There's some kind of phase on that piano as well. Yes, yes. But I suspect this is a Leslie. You know, that's... You listen to that track, you'll hear that being softer and just kind of like, and it adds so much atmosphere. They do that as well uh, in somewhere in Hollywood. Uh, they do it uh, a little bit differently with. Uh, yeah. 
yes. Uh, I've always won- I've always mama. wondered how they got that effect because those piano notes on on the intro to to Fresh Air for My Mama seem like they're they're hit in a in a strange way. Oh, so I think it's the combination of the uh, how it's treated in terms of what effect is on it. That's a Leslie, and of course uh, delay. Uh, as well as reverb. Yeah. So th- I love that. And when you listen closely to their music, you always find these little treasures. Uh, for instance, there's something unusual too in Brand New Day when you get to the... The piano comes in and does something again treated, and it's just wonderful because it's so unusual. Mm. You have the sort of natural acoustic sounds, then you have these ones that have been... Uh, treated through studio effects and it's, it's this is a wonderful sound yeah absolutely um, so anyway that, that that's those two um just picking up on something you said before you said that it's a fairly standard chord progression now correct mm-hmm. me if i'm wrong but I, I had the guitar out earlier and i was just listening through to the harmonies and 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 sort of stacking them up um and working out the chords am i right in thinking that the first chord it, it, starts as a fairly standard sort of d minor but then it's but a then ninth, it, isn't it it's got an e on the top i think yeah i'm, I'm, yeah, talking, I'm thinking uh, about the vocal harmonies but the okay. second chord to, to me to my ears seems to be d diminished or something yes. like that isn't that unusual it, if we look at the vocals uh they are if I remember correctly, yeah, I think I had that written down. They're hitting a D minor triad, so they're not hitting the, the ninth. Uh, Lowell is the only one hitting that ninth. The vocals right. are going to be a triad, the D, F, A, with the A double down an octave. That's what they're hitting. Yeah. And then the A's drop down a half step, and you're right, that, that, that shape would be a D diminished Yes. to a C. Now, here's the thing. If you look at just Lowell, this is the thing that gets a little squirrely. You say, okay, I can analyze the piano. I would label it as that. But what happens when you look at the, the vocal or guitar? Uh, Graham is putting in a C in there. He's putting in the seventh. And he does those little, when he's doing yeah. his little percussive two and four hits. He's doing F triad over you know, F minor. Uh, but it's all part of the same harmonic suit. So yes, essentially it's going to be D minor with an added nine. By the way, if I shift that up a little bit, it's exactly the same chord as. Ah, the opening of Don't Hang Up, right. Yeah. This is very interesting what you're saying here, Eric, because I'm starting to wonder whether my initial assumption about Eric Stewart being the composer is is correct because there seems to be so much of lol here in the in the in the bones of this song Are you, well that could just you... simply be uh, i'll kind of get to that point because i think okay. it still could be eric with lol just embellishing and right. creating variations but so we look at just the, what he's doing that would be labeled as a d minor with an e so it'd be d minor at nine yes. yeah but then he just drops to, like the vocals, Sean, he drops the A down to A flat yep. and keeps everything else. So if you look at that, the only way to really label it as is would be a D diminished add nine. Yes. Then right. we go to C and then we go to A7. Yeah. Now, what I'm hearing here is this is really this four measure progression 
is really just kind of a modified, something that's, that's modified from being very, very standard, which would be a two, five, one, and then this chord would be the five of two to get us back to where we started, the two. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the great thing about this progression, it, it, it sort of started, and I'll just back up, meaning it's the, we're in the key of C, that the first chord is built on the second degree of the C scale, the D minor. The fifth degree would be G, the G dominance, and then back to one. So this idea of two, five, one has been around forever. Mm-hmm. All of like the great American songbook uh, songs, you know, uh, George Gershwin, Harold Arlen, uh, Jerome Kern, uh, would use this, this two, five, one progression as a way of shifting from one tonal center to the other, whether it's between sections or between songs or actually within phrases, you can kind of like, you know, get from one type of harmony and move, you know, right away as provided you set it up with a two, five, one. It's this very way, a smooth way of setting it up. Mm-hmm. And really, whether they were consciously aware of this or not, that's it's acting as a two five one. We resolve to that that one. Um, so it's a it's a very very common thing. Now, jazz artists get bored with just doing straight seventh chords. So it's very common in jazz to embellish those, yeah, particularly yeah. on the five chord. So if I go to the five chord, the G seven. And I do a couple of common colorful tone, tones, the flat nine, A flats, the uh, 13th, the E, we suddenly have this. Yeah. So if I play a two, five, one with that modified G chord, D minor nine, G seven with some bells and whistles, and then C, it goes very smoothly. Now, if I go here and stop on this chord again, and I leave out the G, and I leave out the B, I'm left with what Lowell's playing. Ah, okay. So you see, even though it's not exactly that, it's, it's, it's all part of that same family, and there's almost infinite combinations you can do of two five ones, you know, having these colorful notes thrown in yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's the way i'm hearing this even if they're not aware they're thinking about oh we're going to modify it but there's also another clue if we go ahead to our you know guess what we're back to where we started and this time we have a straight d minor and guess what a g7 yeah and that's essentially what could have happened. That's the one, the, the one time. five, isn't it? The one five. The one five, yeah. yeah. Before we get to the, why would they usually, if you have a repeated uh, phrase, oftentimes the embellishments will be added to the second time. But here, the embellishments are first. <laughs> and I think the clue is the melody. Uh, the melody starts on D. It's far enough away from Lowell's E and it's not a problem. But the second phrase, he moves up. And that's too close to Lowell's E. He's he's now singing an F, is that right, Eric? So he's only only a semitone away from Lowell's E. He's a semitone away. And so they might have tried it that way. And Eric's singing. 
and it clashes. Yes, it does. So it might have just been as simple as saying, well, we'll we'll simplify it. And he moves away from it. Or it just might have been just an organic thing without really thinking about it. But those are just very closely related, two, five, one. Anyway, that's the long and the short of it. Uh, Fortunately, after that, things get pretty straightforward. (laughs) But um, just, just one more comment about the two, five, one. Because it is something that's so traditional, you don't hear it a lot in 10cc music. They tend to just simply make shifts other ways. But you do hear it. Uh, The first album, when you have a lot of those 50s pastiches, uh, Johnny Don't Do It, six, two, five, one. There it is to get back to the one. That's the nature of it. Uh, The bridge of I'm Not In Love, that's a two five one, A minor seven, G seven, G. Of course, they'll nice. do some lovely things like passing tones in the bass, but it's still essentially two five one. That bridge really stands out because the rest of the song is just shifting very slightly, and then you've got real directional harmony in the Ooh, You'll Wait a Long Time for Me, which really contrasts with what's come before, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, yes. and I think it's brilliant that they wait so bloody long to get to it. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the it's like this, I never looked at the timing, but is it three minutes into the song or something? Yeah. It's just, yeah. It really comes in, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. Also, what makes that effective is we've shifted key. The beginning part is an E, you know. Yes. Uh, and by the way, that's clever, too. We don't get to the one chord in Not In Love for quite some time. You know, we yeah. start with all of this stuff, you know, and then we have the whole thing before we get to... It's because, right, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and then, yeah. the, so here we were in E, <clears throat> and then the bridge is in G. But here's the clever thing. Like I mentioned, how can you get from E to G smoothly? Set up the G with its two and its five chord. Another thing that, that connects it is that E melodically is, of course, the, the, the tonic from where we just left off. It's because the same note. Right, got so you, you have all these, you have these clever connecting links, even though we're moving harmonically quite a, far away from where we were. So you're um, just to simplify it a little bit for our listeners, you're you're leaving a kind of gingerbread trail almost. Either the, either the in that case the chords are changing quite radically, but the melody, the note that's being sung is still the same note. So it gives you something to hang on to. Yeah, it's like a string. The new section. A string that, exactly. that, that connects the it's, two it's chords very, together. It's, it's a very clever way. Now, of course, with a lot of 10cc, they don't give a damn about that. They're happy just to shift <laughs> on a dime, yeah. which is, is brilliant, and it shouldn't work, in it, but it does. Um, another song I could think of that uses that would be uh, Channel Swimmer. Oh, I love Channel That's the same 251 of uh, okay. G, yeah. A minus 7, G7, G. not done. Then he does a 251 of E. Channel Swimmer. Three, two, five, ones in Channel Swimmer, just kind of back to back. And another one. It's just two, five, one. If I play it real straight, you can kind of hear that, the, the, the resolution. God. But here's going back to my point. They didn't use that much, but when they did, 
you can kind of recognize that these songs, these, these little bits sound comfortable, dare I say safe. They're great songs yeah. and they're great based circumstances, but you wouldn't think of those as being radical. They sound familiar, don't they? they I mean, do. you So, Eric, do you, do you think that in the case of Natural Wonder, then, they were deliberately choosing a traditional route? Yeah, they're embellishing it with added tones and stuff, but what you're really hearing is a, a series of, of, of cadences, I suppose. It's constantly, it's got that forward momentum, and it would be subliminally recognisable to the viewer or the listener, perhaps? I think so. They are. Uh, it's a very comfortable sound, even with the little bit of spice that, that they're throwing in with those colors. Yes. Um, I, I think that it's got it's, it's it's rooted firmly in traditional harmony. I mean, we we never really challenge the key of C yes. <laughs> in our right. mighty 30 seconds of <laughs> this jingle. <laughs> uh, and they use very, very common kind of, of techniques. Now, if I go to the fourth chord, so we have so we have that kind of modified two five one, technically D minor add nine, D diminished add nine, yeah, C major, yeah. Mm -hmm. By the way, everybody else is hitting C major. The vocals are triad, just the three notes, except for Graham. Is he's he playing? Is he playing a major seventh? Yeah, he's playing the voicing. He's playing is B E G, yeah. which is like an E minor shape. But when you have C in the bass, that's a C right. major seven. Right. So everybody's hitting this, and he's just and he's that he has that little. Yeah. He uses the same kind of trick in "I'm Not in Love." Paul, do you remember when Graham got his guitar out during one of the pods, and he and he, are, yeah. <laughs> he, he well yeah, and he, and he showed us one of the chords that he was hitting, just strumming in "I'm Not in uh -huh. Love," and it was a complete clash with, with what, Eric, what, what with was Eric's going. Electric we're yeah. talking about during the introduction here, aren't you? Yeah, he's not playing the same thing as Eric's playing during the introduction. Yeah, yeah and I think he, I think he was adding in a major seventh, which is you know for 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 our listeners is just one semitone away from yeah, a, a seventh tension. chord yeah. or or, yeah. or or a yeah. straight major chord, and yes, it it, it creates a shimmer of of yeah. Of, oh. And, and they do this all the time, mm. that if you look at any one individual instrument, you could label it one way and say, oh, but they're adding this little color or that. And you know what's fun, guys, is sometimes, like when I've been listening to this stuff by headphones and sort of like, you know, preparing for this, mm. you hear things that would never have survived like the digital age. They would have wiped them out. There's mistakes. There's... Right. A weirdness that is like, I never noticed that before. And I think a lot of it is they just build. They'll start with, you know, perhaps a, a, a trio, and then they'll almost try to cover it up. Down on the casting couch, the star is going to be born. A star with the statue of a Harlow. Let's just zoom out for a minute and look at Natural Wonder as a kind of whole piece. And uh, Eric, what you've been describing there is that we actually have uh, almost a, a cliche, really, musically, in terms of uh, in terms of what we have in relation to a lot of Tenzi's other material. I.e., it's a series of well-worn uh, musical gambits. These uh, cadences uh, going from one chord and resolving into another that are embellished I guess with lots of added tones and and techniques and that 
there's something in natural wonder that is unsatisfying to me. I mean, t- take apart, take take away the, the magic of hear it, hearing it for the first time mm. and, and the beauty of the recording. In terms of a song, and I know we're just talking about an advert here, but it, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's a bit of a throwaway. It, it, that's what my yeah. gut feel tells me. And now what you've explained would seem to support that in that it's it, it's a kind of series of moves that uh, that are that are that aren't new. It's not it's not the process of independent thought almost. Yeah, if I can put it that way. I, I agree. Yeah, I interesting points, Paul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You... And, and that, that's why my initial uh, when you were asking about it, I said it's you know, traditional. It's something that was very familiar yeah. Yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, it was, was like I said, good reason considering what they, it was for. Uh, but you're right. So I think they just kept it very, very simple. And the, some of the bells and whistles, and of course the arrangement with uh, is is just wonderful and, and supportive of the idea. But melodically, yeah, melodically, there's really not much as we talked about. With just that little yes. stepwise yes. motion. There's, there's not much going on. Um, so if I go back to that two, five, one, then we mm-hmm. have this chord, the A7. Yeah. And this is just designed to get us back to the D minor. Yeah. And we talked about how the two, five, one is not very common within 10 CC, but the five to one, if we just look at this, A7, A7 is the five of D. But from five to one is probably the most common cadence in pop, isn't it? It's it's just a, a wonderful way of, of closure. The five is unresolved. It needs to go somewhere. Yeah. And that just dates back forever in, in music. You know, uh, yeah. This is just in tonal music. We have this tonal center, the one. And all the other chords are just kind of like little journeys. And, and the, the, we, we perceive them as how they relate to our tonic key. Yes, you know? yes. And uh, this is why you know, tonality is so satisfying. So we kind of have that home base, and then it's just the movement. Oh, I forgot something, too. Again, <laughs> a little geeky thing. But if we think about the uh, D minor... D diminished, mm-hmm. C. Mm-hmm. 2,000 years and he ain't shown yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> something on the table set. Same chords. Yeah, anyway. Right. Uh, yes. So they might nice. have borrowed that. Now, Eric, yeah. what's, now what's happening the little bit um, coming just after that, which has got quite a bit of interest. We've had a few comments on YouTube. People have heard... Hill Street Blues. They've heard the theme from Taxi. Uh, it's a little rundown, and this I think I'm right in saying is it another type of resolution. It's a kind of a four sliding down to one, isn't it? I think um, it's it's, it's sliding down. It's, it's four three two. Yes, and yes. they're all okay. seventh chords. They're all diatonic seventh chords, meaning they all are built from the white notes, the key of C. So it's a very low, a very low kind of bit. Is that what you're yes. saying? Yes. So, so you have an F major seventh, F major, with an E on top, mm-hmm. three chord, E minor seven, E minor with a D on top, mm-hmm. D minor the two, uh, D minor with a C on top, and so you have those just moving down, and it's something that's very, very, very common for pop uh, pianists, mm-hmm. and that is to not play all four notes of a seventh chord with one hand. Rather, they play the top three notes, and then the the left hand is free to play the roots. So what is interesting about this is you get familiar shapes in the right hand. 
So you can think of F major seventh as being an A minor shape, A, C, E, mm-hmm. with F in the bass. Yeah. A E minor seven as G shape in the right hand with E in the bass. F shape with D in the bass. So that's what's happening here. And this is very common for 10cc, rather than when they're playing uh, sixth chords, seventh chords, and beyond, almost always uh, it's just a three-note voicing in the right hand. They don't bother to double the root, the root they just put into the the left. It's very efficient. This one in particular, by the way, you know, very common sound, you know. (laughs) There's a tune. We're, we're both massive ELO fans, today. by the way. <laughs> oh, heavens. We yeah. can do a whole podcast <laughs> yeah. on ELO. I, yes, I we, this has been discussed before, actually. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk on that another time. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, and, and then we'll follow it up by the Beach Boys, please. Oh, don't. Oh, yeah. Don't. <laughs> and just by simply moving up, locking into one position... He creates so many long passages, you know, for instance, using this. Oh, yes. That's just a single pattern. And it's it's kind of endless. Also, the same pattern. Oh, Oh, wow. Okay. So think things like that, and it goes on. He locks into a strange pattern here, which is like a a seventh chord without the fifth. In this case, uh, um, a a B, D, and then jump up a fifth to the A. So you're kind of like that. And it's an extraordinarily long passage in One Night in Paris that's nothing but leaps and steps of that. God. You can't even do the box right, right. That's, that's, that's all the same. <laughs> the same shape. So he's playing Everything the same shape. From the beginning of that, is it one shape entirely? <laughs> and then the long passage that comes after that, the... Uh, yeah. Same thing. Now that's a full seventh chord. You know. All with the same <laughs> shape. And it's fascinating. He does this time and time and time again. Um, just because he's composing it on the piano. Mm. And so you have this, the, the way the white keys are laid out. He's not necessarily thinking about, oh, I'm going to go from this chord to that. Just like, what will happen if I make these leaps? There's plenty more. Uh, yes. Yeah. All one shape. So <laughs> that's, that's something probably that only an untrained self-taught musician could or would do, right? Well, you, you would never hear him compose those bits if he was a half step lower or a half step higher. If yeah. he was like in the key of D flat, yes, you know, moving up and down on those. Yes, it doesn't much, work. Much harder, it... You have to go in and out of the black notes. Wow. But yes. with uh, the white notes, you can just kind of like lock in and go. 
Yeah, like you could it, almost play it with a rubber hand, couldn't you? Like yeah, you yeah. bend bend the fingers into a shape, and then you, you could get Kevin Godley to play yeah, those exactly. chords. <laughs> it's not to say that he's not a brilliant pianist, because he does some wonderful things and some very oh, creative yes. and some technically challenging things. But that's just one particular quirk that you keep coming across. Fabulous. Um, but there's one thing that I, I I really like this little section here. The young skins younger with those 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 nice the the simple triads in the right yeah. hand going down, kind of one inch to the left at a time. Um, I I love the way Lol both on the grand piano and the electric piano when he when he goes to hit his his G bass. It, there's a little passing note, an F, I think, isn't there? He goes, mm-hmm. dum, dum. He brushes the, brushes the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Could you yeah. play that for us and just demonstrate what sure. Lowell's doing with his left hand? But this is the left hand, it's just doing like an F, F sharp G. Yeah. Oh, F sharp okay? G. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's Back wonderful. Graham's bass is only playing the, the straight G. So that, that again, there's that colourful clash between uh, the piano yes. bass and the and the bass bass. And by the way, this is very typical of pop. Uh, left hand of piano and Graham identical throughout. Yes, I, Whatever I agree. Whatever lulls hitting, it, yeah, they're identical throughout. I believe for the most part. Um, yeah, and what also is nice about this, this is the first time we hear solid block chords. Prior to this, we've been hearing these arpeggios. So that's a change. And also rhythmically, we have this syncopation, just a series of of, of dotted eights, dotted quavers for you chaps. Yes. (laughs) So it's syncopated. So it provides a little bit of rhythmic excitement as it were this the stage of the of the tune as well and and then um, we're into the final section which is uh they we're sort of back at the home key of c and we i think i'm right in thinking we pedal that note while we do a little kind of mini movements to finish off in the right hand is that right that's right paul but we also uh, uh omitted the the chord previously which is of course a huge one for them the f over g Oh, I beg the Carol King chord, right? Mm. The Carol King chord, the, the yeah. I'm not in love chord. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. This is, um, yeah, these is all over the place. Uh, it's so frequent. It begins, I'm not in love. And basically, yes, it's like if you have your bass notes, you're playing a major triad that would be uh, two half steps, two semitones below. So like A over B, mm-hmm. F over G, G over A. They love using this. And this acts most of the time as a five chord of just like the way a, a dominant would. Yeah. There's a dominant chord. Here is the... Yeah, it's just a way of adding a little bit of a suspension. But it's very, very common. that They love this chord and they will use it either resolving or resolving to just a straight major. You know, yeah. Andy... And right. again, a whole step lower. You know, so they use it all over the place. Um, yeah, so that's getting us back to C. Now, this, right away, when I heard that, I'm just thinking of a standard cliche blues ending. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this idea of moving... Uh, 
it's, it's uh, yeah. a thousand <laughs> variations of that. Uh, and the ending. You know, and if you listen to the vocals, they're pretty much doing. You know, the vocals are just, are descending like that. That's right, so with with very un, unsatisfying harmony on the on the vocals on the the very you know natural wonder. You've got two voices singing like a unison of that C note, haven't you? And then Graham yeah. is is Graham's doing the sort of descending chromatic kind of. I I hear three voices doing the chromatic. I'm hearing the G double. Octaves, and then I'm also hearing one on the third. Three, five, three, two, one. Uh, okay. So I'm hearing very barbershop, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. They're doing that, and again, this is something that is very, very common for them to do. There's a million variations of this. Technically, it usually is like a. Uh, if I'm doing the key of C, it's like a, 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 a one chord of C with a three in the bass. Mm-hmm. You go down to a flat three diminished, uh, right. uh, E flat diminished seventh. Mm-hmm. Go back down to the two, D minor seven, to the one. There's so many variations on that. And they use this one too. I mean, little by little. Oh, yeah. yeah. Little by little. You know, or... <laughs> They, they built an entire section on One Night in Paris. Is he gonna buy? Is he gonna pay? Is he gonna find It's nothing but that over and over and over again. Wow. But Eric, how, how do they stop that last little section from sounding corny? Because that doesn't sound corny to me. It sounds quite 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 beautiful, that little well, movement at the part end. Part of it is is the pedal bass. The bass right. is staying on the C. Yeah. Right, so right. normally you would have the bass do E. D, C. Yes, okay. But when it's uh, stuck there, you have... Yeah. Yes. It's a little different. And, of course, then we're back to the arpeggios with, with low. You know? Yes. So all those things help to kind of tie it together because you have the same motif, the same pattern as you did earlier. Uh, if you only had the vocals, that would be a big giveaway. You know, uh, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. very much doing that. But the other bits um, are, are are fine. Oh, before I forget, two guys, uh, that, 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 that string synthesizer, too. Yeah, and, yeah. yes, absolutely. And there's a, a chord in the middle there that I wanted to ask you about because it doesn't seem to to be played by another instrument. Yeah, that's, it's, it, and that's neat. And it's pretty much just doing, holding the voicings that Law's playing on piano. So instead of rolling it up, he's just sitting. And that's pretty much it. Uh, it's interesting, though, too. He doesn't play the syncopated bit with the strings. My guess is because maybe the attack is so slow, it would just yeah. it'd be, it'd be sluggish. But then he comes yeah. back and he plays the magic F over G. And then just octaves, and just holds the octaves. The that was exactly the chord I was going to ask you about, Eric. It, it, oh, yeah. It seemed yeah, to be just, a, a very just... lull thing. Yeah. By the way, guys, I, that that probably, I'm, I'm guessing that might be a, an ARP, like a Selena string sense. Can you think of any other times they used that? We were, I, I might have one. We were talking oh. uh, earlier on, and, and neither of us could think about any other time. Well, uh, why I have you got... one. 
Um, you jump to the middle of Mandy with the. Ah, uh, yes. Listen to that, and it sounds like it could be the same instrument. You're right, you're right, you're right. Yes. I saw her walking on the water as the sharks were coming for me. I felt Mandy pull me up, give me the kiss of life, just like the girl in Dr. No. I always thought that was a gizmo, but it's not, is it? No, no. I don't think it is. I think it could be the same instrument. Great spot. Yeah, that's a wonderful spot. Um, Something else um, I spotted a couple of hours ago, Eric, when I was just getting ready for for our chat, was I was looking at the the harmonies or listening to the harmonies, had my guitar there, and just trying to pick apart the voicings. And I was Mm -hmm. 100% expecting triads. In other words, three-part harmony sung by Lol on top, Kevin in the middle and and Graham lower down but mm-hmm. there is a fourth part all the way through um, which seems to be between Graham and Kevin so with the first chord for example you've got Lol singing at a high A then you've got Kevin singing an F and then you've got Eric tucked in singing a D uh, with, and Graham mm-hmm. with an A underneath um, mm-hmm. And that would explain to me why those harmonies sound so wonderfully thick. On the fourth chord, where they're playing that sort of quite standard A7, um, Lol, Lol is singing the dominant seventh right up the top there, G. Very Brian Wilson to do that. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's just lovely. It's a lovely touch. And like the Beach Boys, I love the way that the middle harmonies tend to move very, very slightly, if at all. Um, yeah. so, so everyone's uh, moving very gingerly, like a semitone down. Yeah. Uh, if, Isn't that if, great? If, yeah. if you can stay where you are, stay. And then it, it's just like Brian, a <laughs> bit like Brian at the top and Mike at the bottom. Uh, they're the ones kind of doing the, the the heavy lifting with melodies, whereas the you know the Carls and the Owls and the Bruces in the middle are, are kind of stuck as as this yeah. solid block. And I think it, I, it I think it's very beautiful. And the reason I think these these harmonies are so gorgeous is that you've got the mystery added Eric in there with the fourth mm, fourth mm-hmm. harmony part, and that was a that was a lovely discovery that we had earlier on. Yeah, isn't it beautiful? And it, it's also very economical. Like it, it, just to hit the triad and then just to double that top note, and then of course you have the, the beautiful movement as you're talking about, while the others just stay the same. Yes. And then when you get to here. Only that third voice from the bottom stays the same. That's the it. others all move. Yeah. You know? Subtle, subtle change, oh, isn't it? It's lovely. Yeah. The top one stays the same as well. I'm sorry. You just have the bottom notes going. And yes. the top notes staying the same. That's it. And it's the only time, too, I think, where you actually have four separate pitches. Other than that, you have a doubling. You have, like, three distinct, you know, tones. D, F, A, doubled. You know, D, F, A, flat, doubled. You get it, yeah. That's the first time you have that. But, guys, don't you wish, I mean, 
the string synth is interesting, but wouldn't it have been great to not have that and just have that wash of the vocals all the way throughout? We talked, that, we talked about that before. And... It kind of just doubles the job, doesn't it, and muddies it up a bit. Uh, maybe they just ran out of time. Don't forget they it, were it, doing this. They were doing this on a day, you know, a Saturday <laughs> in between other studio work for other acts, yeah. and <laughs> and maybe they just simply thought, well, we've got to finish by X time. We'll we'll only arrange. You can sort of see them sitting with their pen and paper working out who's going to sing what and maybe they thought oh sod it we've got we've got 10 seconds of harmonies let's just do the rest with string synth <laughs> yeah i think you're probably right it is uh, just a way of of kind of uh, getting that that pad of a sustained harmony quite cheaply and quickly yeah. it's kind of ticking the box as graham said you know you've got the the i'm not in love moog uh, bass drum tick you've got the lovely back in harmonies tick okay they're in there they're not all the way through but they're there <laughs> we've ticked the box <laughs> who knows we've got and we, we, we've ticked the box of classic album tracks haven't we with lols kind of don't hang hollywood <laughs> type thing <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it has ticked a few boxes uh, yeah marvelous eric this has been incredible um, wow! And oh, I've something had so much that, fun talking with you guys. It, yes. Honestly, brilliant, and and it's the kind of thing that we're going to have to uh, listen and re-listen to several times so that we can catch everything that you were putting across. Because I, I hope that the non-musicians among our listeners, and I know many many of us all together are musicians, many aren't. I hope that you've you've managed to hear from Eric's amazing demonstrations with those marvelously nimble fingers. Um, and, and an amazing ear uh, that you, you've been able to hear for yourselves ex exactly what we've been talking about here. Uh, Eric, it's been incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much, guys. And again, huge fan of what you're doing. Thank you so much. It's just been uh, a pleasure talking with you. Let's do it again soon. Yes, you're please. Um, <laughs> and let's, let's, let's bring on Lowell's Magic Chord very, very soon. Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> All right, take care, Eric. It's been really lovely to meet you, and, and we'll see you very soon. Bobby Listening to the Consequences podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening.